look for my suit. Now, Robert is not six foot two. And anyway, I noticed that my suit isn't where I hung it. Now, that's a common thing for me. Stuff isn't where I put it. But not with my clothes, because the kids aren't interested in my clothes. They want my tools or whatever. And so I went out to the motorhome and I knocked on the door and Robert was in a beautiful black suit that was too big for him. He said, this is a really nice suit. I didn't know I had it. <laughs> I said, Robert, I think you have my suit on. Thought there must be something. And we had a good laugh about that. I didn't share that one at the graveside, but I did get dressed and I was able to make it on time. The crying moment at my mother-in-law's memorial, just to be family with you and share a little bit, the crying moment was when her son got up in his full, he's just retired as a lieutenant colonel from the army, which means they still wear the uniform. If you retire, you can wear a uniform, as Mike will do. And uh, see, I didn't retire, so I don't wear it. He got up and ran the service like a military thing. He, he read everybody the list of things on the, on the agenda. And Beverly was a veteran. We did a military honors at her graveside. And so she would have loved her son to be up there in his full dress or his, uh, uh, dress blues, army uniform. And, uh, the exciting, like tear gusher moment for me was when he said to open things in the service that he had sat down with his mother a couple months before when she was in the hospital, actually a few months when she broke her hip and asked her if she believed in Christ as her savior. That's how the service began. I did not know it would start that way. Did she trust in Christ as her savior? Yes. Did she, did she believe she, she was forgiven of her sins? Yes. And she's nodding because she can't speak. Does she um, believe she was going to heaven? She said, and then my lawyer, tax attorney, army retiree, West Point classmate, brother-in-law, with whom I haven't shared much time in the Bible since 2002, says, well, mom, if you trusted in Christ as your savior and your sins are forgiven, then you are going to heaven. And um, I was so happy to hear that. And that's, that's kind of how the day began and that's kind of how the day ended. So these times that we had, that we're going, life is constantly changing. One of the big epics is when you lose both your parents, when your second parent dies. It's a, it's a, some of you know, it's a major adjustment. So please do keep Krista in prayer. Also, Robert, Robert Eberhardt is a believer in Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he said, well, I don't like to go to church, but if you were a pastor here, I'd, I'd go to your church. And, um, he does every time he's up here, he makes sure they come, they would come. And, uh, Dave, that was good. So please, please do pray for Robert. I expect him up here. Um, I told him to come dodge July and uh, get out of the heat a little bit. And um, I think people in Texas can't even conceive of it. 
They're like, what, huh? Because they're just so used to, we're not going outside for two months. Anyway, uh, please pray for Robert Eberhardt. All right, that's enough of my anecdote. What else? Pray for, yes, sir. That's right. Remind me her last name. Teresa had a, a small stroke, I believe. And of course, we want to remind, remind ourselves of Don Harris and Lisa. And of course, Jan Gardner and all those that are struggling with. We have an address that we're going to post downstairs that we have permission to post for Tony Katie. She's in a hospital for special care down in New Britain. She cannot receive phone calls and she cannot receive guests, but we can send her a card. So we have downstairs on the, we'll have it posted. If you want to send Tony a card, that's a hard thing with her being isolated like that. Beachwood opens today. Y'all please support that ministry, which has been completely choked off over the last year and a half. And, uh, you know, whatever they're doing with the reset and the new normal, they're opening back up for us to share the gospel and the uh, retirement home. So please pray for that. Please support that as you can. Uh, Mark, who all is on the team? So Mark is on the team and Dave's coming. Okay. Thank you, Dave. That's right. Y'all know John, he was here for both hours last Sunday. Well, very quickly thereafter, he went to the hospital. I'm going to say on Wednesday. Um, and we've been praying for him. Hope, did everyone get the text? You getting the text? We can text the whole church. We're trying not to abuse that, but it's really great to know if somebody needs prayer, prayer support. Um, and um, I don't think he's out yet, um, but I, I don't have a, a, that up-to-date report. Is it two F's? This just in. Neil Adams, that's uh, Joyce Mann's nephew, is having 
knee surgery tomorrow. This is a 16-year-old giant. I think he's like six foot four. <laughs> who is uh, who is having um, reconstructive surgery of some sort on his knee, um, ACL surgery. That's what it is. So that's a hard uh, hard place to start. Being tall isn't all it's cracked up to be, but uh, play, please pray for Neil. Yes, ma'am. Who's that? John Elston, that's right. Careful when we list the names of people that we're specific, we're, gonna, we're praying for everyone. And uh, don't ever feel left out if you're sick or your loved one is sick, if we don't list you by name. Um, but I don't have an update on, on John or Don or Lisa, but y'all know John Elston. Y'all know he is, uh, he's also suffering with multiple myeloma as is Don Harris. What does Paul pray about in the New Testament? The one that teaches us the most about prayer after Jesus. The apostle of the Lord Jesus teaches the most about prayer. What does he teach us? What does Paul pray for? Bible quiz. Yeah, the mission. You know, you got to be careful about language. It can get um, so used that it loses its punch. I just want you to hear one of Paul's great prayers. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, and do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he tells you he prays for. This is his prayer journal, if you will. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over the things, all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the second part of the great commission, that prayer to disciple by teaching them to keep all that you've commanded. You can't have that spirit of revelation and wisdom and insight and knowledge of God without being taught. We can't. That's why we teach. And so thank you, John, or, uh, Justin. If I say the word missionary to Christian culture people, we think of those folks that aren't around because they're over there. And so that's, that's the way language works. Well, missionaries, they're those people that go overseas or those they're, they're, they're with the, the pygmies or whatever, however you think about it. 
the little people in Papua New Guinea. That, that's the way you think about missionaries. But if you think that this world is not your home, that you're a citizen of heaven, as the Apostle Paul teaches the Philippians, then you take that word mission and apply it to yourself, as we'll do today with the word minister. And recognize God has a call on your life and the reason you're here is for this work, where you are or wherever God's plan takes you. And so that's the focus of Paul's prayers, the Great Commission, that some would open, that God would open the, the, the door to the gospel for those that haven't heard, and that he would edify those who have so that they would be useful in making more disciples. Let's pray about it. Father, we recognize the reason for our lives, and it's not to just keep on living. We do have people on the sick list and some that are dying. And for them, Father, we pray for dying grace as your plan requires. For joy in their salvation. For courage as they look to your son, the only source of our hope, the only courage. For a boast here at the end of life as we want to every day of our lives that, that focuses only on the Lord Jesus. But Father, the reason we're here is not to continue to exist in this frame of life. It's to bear witness for your son. And I pray for Preston City Bible Church that we would have that spiritual growth that Paul just described in Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 1, so that we would think like we should, so that we could do the work the way he want us to do it. Father, don't let us be about your work out of a sense of ill-conceived guilt, out of legalistic fervor to be right, out of anything but gratitude and the joy of our salvation because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and is doing in us through your spirit. Father, I pray for Preston City Bible Church that we would daily be transformed by the renewing of our thinking so they wouldn't think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but that we would think with soundness, we'd be able to approve what pleases you. Pray for all those that are ill, for Teresa and her recovery, they figure out what's going on with her, her strokes. For all those that we haven't listed today that are ill, for Don and Lisa and John and Jan and Tony, Father, we praise you. We, we certainly praise you for Dave Willis being with us this morning. Not only just here physically, but being in this life with us after uh, the health scare that he just had. Thank you for bringing him together with us and that he's on mission. He's able to go serve today, work with Mark. We pray for that work in Beechwood, Father. Let this be fruitful. Let someone here cry, hear of Christ who hasn't before. Let some who have and know your son be refreshed and edified in your word as they go there to bear witness for Christ. Father, we pray for John. We thank you for his service here, for your work in his life and his ministry. And we know that you bring us through these trials because you want us to trust you. Please heal him of his lesions, of his infection. Prevent him from further infection in the hospital. Pray for his traveling mercies for all those coming home from uh, the wedding. Father, wedding's a beautiful thing. We thank you for a beautiful wedding. We praise you and rejoice in that. 
especially in that it will testify to Jesus Christ to the family and the friends. But Father, more than that, I pray for a, a marriage that will glorify you. A disciple-making marriage that will glorify you. Starting inside the family and working its way out. Father, do pray for Neil. Help him um, with any trepidation he might feel about going for surgery. Please help the doctors uh, guide their hands as they injure to repair, as they cut to heal. Father, strengthen Neil for tomorrow and strengthen the doctors to be good at it. Please let this uh, surgery take and, uh, and provide a, a foundation for a lifetime of, uh, of walking and serving you on that knee. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn, please, to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning, please. 1 Timothy 6. We're in a section of Paul's letters that it's very easy to preach. There's an interesting thought in the philosophy of ministry out there that you might notice. When people tell me, look, it's not the preaching, but we're going. We're going to so-and-so other church, and it's the same. You know, the same teaching. It's just a different ministry context or however... And they tell me what so-and-so church is, and I think that's not the same, but I, I can see why you would think it is. I don't say that, I think that. When that happens, and it, it's not, not like an everyday thing, but when that happens, you know, it hurts a little bit. But before that happens, in any more cases, I certainly want the church family to understand. The, the philosophy of ministry that I have about the pulpit is that this is an opportunity for you to grow and learn. For you to become more than you were before to stretch and get something that you didn't already have. Not just to be reinforced in what you already do have, but to take the next step. That's really important to me. And since I think that way about this work, that's always my goal is to start to, to kind of meet you where you are, wherever you are. And as much as it depends on me, and I know that's very little, through the word to bring you further. One thing I've noticed in popular evangelicalism about the teaching or the preaching ministry is that there isn't much challenge about what the text means. The challenge is going to come from trying to make you feel the right way about what it means. And that's never my goal. If God does that, I'm going for that as much as he, but my goal is to go for what it means. And I don't come to the text assuming that a cursory casual reading is going to give me the meaning. And that's the difference. I'll say it again. What I've noticed in popular evangelical preaching, it seems to be that they're assuming that if you just casually read the passage, you know what it means already. And I start with the casual reading too and see what's going on here. But then I start digging. And I'm trying to get to what Paul means by what Paul said. 
and then as best I can in English present that to you. And then I'll apply it. I will. Then I will apply it and say, how then shall we live? And so what are you saying, pastor? I'm saying that I don't tell as many stories or plan to tell a bunch of stories because I'm after what the text means. And I don't assume that it's just very straightforward in the, the new living translation or even the new American standard, though it is fairly accurate in the new American standard. If you're going for a word for word translation, speaking of which in first Timothy chapter six, verses 11 through 16, Paul says, but flee from these things, you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I read farther past what I want to preach on because I believe in working a paragraph. When I first went to seminary after two decades of intense Bible study, it was a new thought to me that you would work a paragraph. It's amazing what is clarified for you if you grab the whole paragraph. There's another thought while we're studying how to study. How does this paragraph relate to what preceded? And how does it relate to what's coming next? How does this whole thing fit together? Now, as we were reading our casual reading just now, did any question marks pop up in your mind as you're working through? Anything? Hmm. I wonder what that's talking about. Hmm. Because see, that's what we're talking about when we're saying, what's the meaning? What's he talking about? While we're playing observation, tell me what is in red. Commands. Who is Paul to command Timothy in the imperative mood, these things? Who does he think he is? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the study of the Christian life of Paul. Been looking down memory lane in my folder on this study. It's the first file is dated 2016. It's a big thing to walk through Paul's life chronologically and see how his letters fit into the life. You know, the Bible doesn't really give you, no matter how hard you try, doesn't give you a clear story of Paul's life as much as you'd like, but it does give you an overwhelming impression of what your life is to be about. I hate to be cliche, but God has a claim on your life. He has something for you and me, every one of us to be about. And it isn't for Pastor Dave to make you feel guilty about, but it is for me to remind you of consistently so that as you get up in the morning, you say, what is my day about? Why am I here? Beloved, it's not to pay the bills. But you got to pay the bills. That's not why you're here. 
You don't get a, a super detailed biography of Paul's life if you do what we've done. You get an overwhelming consideration that your life's purpose is God's mission. And the mission started in the creation. The mission is most clearly demonstrated in Christ, the word who became flesh, who was on mission. And the mission is to reveal the Father. And the most exquisite way that's ever been done is the cross of Jesus Christ, showcasing God's love and saving us and his just wrath on sin and being condemned for our sins to save us. He's revealing the Father and you're bearing witness for Christ and how you live and how you speak and what you do. And this sews together, in my view, the entirety of New Testament spirituality, New Testament theology. The whole thing is the work. What do you mean? I mean, your dad has a project he's working on and he wants you to be a willing participant in the project. So he gave you the Holy Spirit. So he gave you a spiritual gift. So he gave you his word. So he wants you to walk by the spirit according to the word. To what end? So you could do this project with him. So you could be about the work that he's doing. That's your life. That's the Christian spiritual life. That's the Christian life of Paul. And here we hear the apostle teaching Timothy by command in five cases here, what this needs to look like. Paul knows Timothy very well. I think they've been associates for maybe 20 years at this point. Timothy is probably, a, as I've said before, he's probably a young man or a teenager, even younger. When Paul first comes to Galatia, to the Galatian region in Lystra and Derby, he's, Timothy's from Lystra. And where Paul first preaches to the Gentiles in his first missionary journey, early on, his first letter is to the Galatians. Timothy's from this area. And he becomes a believer through the ministry of the Apostle Paul to to his mother and grandmother. And so Timothy is, is Paul's son in the word. And here at the end of Paul's life, at the end of his ministry, Timothy's part of the first generation sort of legacy of this work. So he has a personal stake in Timothy's life and it's important to see that, to understand the, the tone of the letter. It's also important to see that in terms of the philosophy of ministry. I know that all of our personalities are different. We all feel socially awkward in different points in different ways for different reasons. And some of you never knew a stranger and some of you know no one but strangers. And life has its challenges with dealing with people. But we're not supposed to be impersonal in this work if we're gonna be like Paul, if we're gonna be like the Lord Jesus. You know, Jesus nicknamed some of his disciples, like several of them. Hey, you're the rock. Peter's name is Simon, Simeon. No, nope. rock boy. I'm going to call you the rock. You're unstable as can be, but we're going we're gonna to shore that up. You're going to be the rock. The sons of thunder. Boerginese, the sons of thunder. This means they're always fighting. Oh, here they come. Push, stop, push me, stop. They're walking down the trail coming to, to, to the assembly. Here come the thons, sons of, the thons of thunder. Here come the sons of thunder. It's personal. It's personal. It's interactive. It's relational. The spiritual life 
in terms of making disciples. And that carries good and bad. No one is Jesus but Jesus. Nobody is going to be sinless in the arrangement but the Lord Jesus Christ. So love covers a multitude of sins. But it is, nevertheless, the sinner. The Apostle Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, and tells him what it needs to look like that he walk as a minister of the gospel. A couple of observations in verse 11. What you're running from and what you're running toward. He uses two verbs in the imperative. Fugo and um, Dioko. And these two are opposite one another in terms of what you're chasing. You're running away from the sins that we just described in verses 10 and those before, where you had corporate sins as a consequence of a few rejecting the word of God. Just by way of quick review, what we're fleeing from. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, Paul says that slaves are to honor their masters. Roman slaves would honor their Roman masters so the gospel won't be spoken against. And if you have Christian masters, then you serve them uh, all the more because they're going to receive the benefit and they're brothers in Christ. And it's completely counterintuitive to the way the world would think about masters and slaves, especially the way the slaves would think. And so that's, that's what Paul says the, the, the Christian slave is to think like. And then he doubles down and says, and this is the word of Christ in verses 3 through 10, and says, if you reject this, it's because you're arrogant. And it, it, Timothy, take note, if someone rejects the sound teaching of Christ, they're, they're sick in their mind through, through arrogance. They think they know better than God. Their reasoning is superior to God's word is the ultimate summary. And slavery is an economic category. And masters and slaves, that's economics today, management and labor in this culture. There is, there is a horrible problem of slavery, which we should seek to eradicate in our culture. And Paul is talking about Roman slavery, which is a different uh, legal, legal matter in their day. The illegal slave trade of sex slavery in this culture is certainly and obviously a great evil and bears little connection to what we're talking about in verses one and two of chapter six. That, that aside being what it is, when Paul doubles down and says, if you deny the soundness of the teaching of Jesus Christ about your economic lot, it's because of arrogance and human reasoning that you think your reasoning is superior to God's revelation, which is the problem of our culture and all cultures. We don't hate the culture. The culture is the collection of people and how they interrelate their ideas, their preferences, their, their art forms, the language we use, culture and cult, different groups, the different cultures have all kinds of subcultures in this country. Our problem isn't culture. Our problem is the world and the world is related but different than the culture. The world is a system of communication. We've heard about it in chapter five with the doctrines of demons is a system of communication and domination and deception by Satan and his fallen angels, where they have deceived the nations and all the people in the nations. 
the world, the cosmos, the ruler of this world, Jesus calls Satan. This world system has infiltrated and infected like a virus all the cultures. So you can't just plug into the culture without filters. That's the Christian project for 2000 years. We aren't part of this world. We belong to the coming kingdom of Christ, but we are in it to serve within it. And so you have to learn the language. You have to get connected to the people, but you have to have your filter. And Paul is helping with the filter when he says, this is the way to think about Roman slavery, Christians. And if you deny the words of Christ, it's because of an arrogance problem. You're puffed up. And then he says that arrogance brings with it uh, word battles out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind deprived of the truth who suppose that now now and then we turn a corner on economics who suppose godliness is a means of financial material gain context timothy is being sent to fix the problem in ephesus and it's probably leaders and teachers in the church in ephesus that he's sent to address that's why the discussion of elders and deacons he's going to reprimand these people and rebuke the false teaching and he's saying this is what you're going to see it's a mess because there's been a rejection of God's word that it results in these corporate sins. And you can trace through to the fruit of this in this idea that being a good Christian is going to get you material wealth, that you're after material wealth. There are so many counterfeits to our riches in Christ. There are so many counterfeits to Christian spirituality or biblical theology. One that comes to mind is the a couple generations after Paul's life, the Gnostic movement gets into full flower. You have several gospels, supposed gospels that are not written by any of the apostles, but named after them, like the gospel of Thomas, a, a Gnostic forgery. Coming from a philosophy that is has some Christian overtones, but some Greek uh, platonic philosophy thrown in and some mysticism. And it becomes this big movement of mystery cult religion. The knowledge. What are these people offering? When you boil it down, what is their alternative to Jesus Christ? Who's made one new human being out of the two, the Gen Jews and Gentiles to build the church. What is the alternative? Sex. The phallic cult, man and woman united in the act of marriage. That's all that Gnosticism really had to offer. You know, like the way we all got here. And mystery cults continue today. There's a mystery fraternal organization. They have G on their belt buckle for God. But the G they're talking about, the God they're talking about is not the God we worship. They cover their God up with an apron and it's the phallic cult. It's the same thing. See, paganism, it, Satan doesn't have apparently that many ideas. He's got a lot of ideas of how to present the same message again and again. And 
So this, this, is, this is another distraction. Another counterfeit is that you'll get rich by ministering the gospel. Simon Magus, the, the Simon the Magician problem. And Paul says godliness, the spiritual life, the walk by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit through the Word of God, empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. See, the secret to a lust for wealth is dis malcontentment, is, an, is a discontent. That's the whole way that you get to that chasing after riches. If you content yourself in the Lord, you become stabilized and then you can deal with money as you need to. If you're not content in him, then you start looking for something else to fill what that void that he alone can fill. That's what we do. And, and so money becomes the obvious thing. I can touch it. I can see it. It gets me more stuff. I can have more and there could be more and more. And if I do this, I'll get more. And so we start down that line that all human beings do of chasing money. And so I want you to see the close connection between the rejection of God's word because of a prior condition of human arrogance with an ultimate fruit of chasing money as your life's pursuit so that they Christianize it and say, well, we're doing it for Jesus who has all the riches and he's going to give them to me. And this is very obviously a problem in our culture, Christian culture today. The idea that if you're good with God, then he's pouring riches on you. And that if you're suffering financially, it's because you're suffering spiritually. You're lagging behind spiritually. You're not giving enough for God to really open the floodgates or something. I feel on TV like the Lord is putting on your heart $1,500. I feel like he wants you to make out that check to this ministry and send it. This just in from the Lord. You know, that's the kind of stuff on TV. Maybe you've seen, I don't want to name names. The eighties were, were really full of this, but it's still going on. And it's the name it and claim it health and wealth gospel, which isn't the gospel. It's not healthy and it is very impoverished spiritually. We could keep talking about it, but that's the flow of thought in verses three through 10. I would not have come up with that flow of thought. I'll tell you again. The teaching on slavery, the rejection of it because of a prior arrogance. You don't like God's word because your arrogance, you know better. So you don't submit to God's word and change. You re remain focused, fixated on your foolishness, which then just goes to where the world goes of just chasing wealth. And then you bring a Christian label on it and you baptize it as it were, as it's Christian. Paul says, we've brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. But if we have food and covering with these things, we'll be content. There's contentment. If you have food and shelter, be content. Because that's what you need for what? The mission. You can do the work if you've got enough food for energy and enough shelter to keep you safe. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Literally drown them with ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Self-destructive. Now notice again, why am I do doing this big context workup? Because every 
passage is connected to what came before. So this is the flow, is rejection of the word with the result in, because of arrogance, rejection of the word because of a prior arrogance that then issues forth in just chasing wealth. And then he says, now you, O man of God. We don't have this vocative marker, O. That's an omega, the W there. It means O. O man of God. In the, I'm, I'm watching some fundamentalist Baptists laugh at themselves uh, in some of the, the, the clips that the pastors do. The internet is a marvelous thing. Um, some of these guys really need to tone it down and get back in the Bible. Um, but I'm sure we could all, you could take a gag reel from my work too, I'm sure. But, um, but they, they've got a, a, a phrase, MOG, for these pastors that think they're it. They're the man of God. And I, I guess you would get it from here in First Timothy uh, six eleven. Um, you're all supposed to be men and women of God. I've been applying Paul's ministry to your life because, like Paul, you're a believer in Christ with the Holy Spirit and a spiritual gift and a, a mission that God has given all of us to work on together. So we all have that in common with Paul, and so you have that in common with Timothy. So you apply this to yourself. Now, you, O oh man of God, flee. Fugo, run away from these things, from all that we just talked about, that whole rationale. How do you, how do you get rid of that chasing wealth, arrogance? We, well, we deal with wealth. We say, God owns it all, including me. Whatever I have is his, relax. Contentment. What about, what about arrogance? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, 6. So that he'll promote you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you, right? Humble yourself. It's a constant repentance. We slide into this thought that it's about me. We all do it. We all still struggle with the sin nature and it's a constant daily. It's not about me. What do you do about the word? Well, this culture says, you know, verses one and two of chapter six is, uh, is, is repressive or reinforcing the status quo of systemic racism or whatever they want to say. And we say, well, the culture says that because it's been affected by the world, but the word of God says this. So I will take the word of God and stand against the culture because of his infection with the word. And that'll be the antidote. And maybe two or three people that you encounter can, can hear and be reasoned with. Maybe you're going to be in their lives to say, this is the part of the culture you have to reject. You have to say no to this because the word of God says this. And guess what? You're interacting in the culture, but you're not com corrupted by it. You, O man of God, flee these things. And how? Pursue, run after, dioko. If you're listening in Greek, you're hearing run away from and run again, run toward. Righteousness. Righteousness. I believe that the apostle John talks about this in first John chapter one, when he says, if we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God and the blood of his son, Jesus goes on cleansing us from all sin. It's about you and God, the father in first John chapter one, your fellowship with him. Righteousness practically experiences that walk in the light. 
And, and this is why some theologians have kind of slid off into this expectation that if you really tarry or something, you get into sinless perfection. Well, righteousness is sinless. And the walk by the spirit is without sin. Does anybody have a verse on how you cannot walk by the spirit and walk in personal sin? Anybody know a verse on that? Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk in dependence upon the power supplied by. That's what it means, walk by the spirit. And you will not be able to, it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You cannot sin while walking by the spirit. So understand why some have slid into sinless perfection as like this idea of what you'll get as a mode of life. No, it is the normal expectation is that you walk in fellowship with God. And when you commit personal sin, you need to acknowledge it, confess it, and walk in the light as God himself is in the light. What is godliness? It is the Christian spiritual life. It is Godwardness. It is the spirituality of living a life of worship. It's the, the root of this is good worship, godliness, faith, this could also be faithfulness because it's pistis and it could be both. It could be one or the other. And so I'm starting to see lists that Paul likes to make. <clears throat> Paul makes use of this word in his list in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22-23. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Not that God creates faith and then you have it because God puts it in you. That's not what he means, I believe. But it is the consequence of what God does with you that makes you stable, faithfulness. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, again, in Galatians 5. Does Paul use faith and love anywhere else in a list in his letters? Of course. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, where he's talking about walking by the Spirit so that your spiritual gift expression is not in sin, but it's in love. And then you have the long love verse, love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where love believes all things. Love suffers long. Love is gentle. The things that are described of love and then listed also in the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about you walking by the Spirit with these effects that the Holy Spirit has in you, your spiritual life. So, see, 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 son Timothy, you can't be part of this chasing wealth or this arrogance rejecting the word or these strifes and disputes and all these things. You can't be part of these, these problems that are driving the, the mess in Ephesus if you're pursuing the work of the Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit's expression of himself, of God's character through you. And again, it's grace all the way. But notice that Timothy's told to pursue, to chase after these things. I think that in this command here, this word pursue is the answer to a lot of our problems when it comes to uh, a weak and a, a, an impotent, passive Christianity. Pastor's going to preach about how we need to be grateful, but I don't feel grateful. Pastor's going to say we need to walk in righteousness, but I struggle with my sin nature. Pastor's going to say we should love one another, but I just don't feel particularly loving, especially toward these people, whichever category of group you're in, the people at work, the people at church. Well, in all these things, we're served up with a choice, and the capability to make that choice is the grace of God, but you have to choose it. I believe Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, unlock the problem, unlock the door to making the choice 
to be the beneficiary and the exponent of God's grace in whatever the circumstance is. You have to choose it. The Apostle Paul says that God is working in you both to fellow, to want. There's it. I don't really want it. Identify that. I don't want to be loving. I don't want to be gentle. I don't want to be righteous, particularly in this moment. Tell the truth. God is working you both to want, fellow, and to proso, to do, or poyo, to do of his pleasure. The, the Lord God himself is in you. The Holy Spirit is to produce the desire and the carrying out of these things. That's the power of the Spirit in you. And so, and he's talking in, in Philippians 2.12 about obedience. So then my beloved, as in my absence, now, as you did in my presence now, in my absence much more, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this word pursue is the answer. Christianity is not a passive lifestyle. It's not a waiting around until the Holy Spirit quakes you to, to loving. That's not it. it. That's not how it works. You un, if, listen, if you understand that you're responsible to walk in righteousness, if you understand that thought right now, because the Spirit is mediating that truth to you through this word of verse 11, 1 Timothy 6, 11, that I'm responsible to walk in righteousness, if you, like Timothy's being told that that I'm responsible to be godly. I'm responsible to, to be faithful. I'm responsible to love, to, to, to long suffering. That these are the character qualities that I'm responsible for. That fact alone now puts you into the realm of, do I choose, do I want, do I choose what God is wanting for me? And you've got to meet that moment with yes, if you're going to do what Timothy is being encouraged to do here. You have to run after it. You have to say yes and then you have to choose it. But I fail. I know we do fail. We aren't perfectly loving. No one is Jesus, but Jesus. But I'm not walking in perfect righteousness. Yes, but when you're walking by the Spirit, you are walking in righteousness. That's fellowship with God. And so tell the truth. I don't feel like it. I don't want it. That's a great starting place in your prayers. But Timothy, you run after this. And beloved, if, if this describes your life, if you're like, yeah, I'm struggling getting off this Christian sofa to, to walk in righteousness or to, 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 be, to walk in godliness, the spiritual life, to, to be faithful, to love as I'm commanded. If this describes you that you're struggling with this, it's okay. We all struggle with this. Tell the truth about it and then pursue it through prayer. But here's the thing. There is no Holy Spirit crane to pull you off the couch. That's not how it works. The spirit is working in you with these thoughts. And now you have to decide what kind of person you're going to be. Am I going to listen to God's word and do what he said in the power he supplied? Or am I going to wait on him to force me? He doesn't say, wait till God forces you. He says, pursue it, run after it. Why does Paul say that? Because the apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ knows that the spirit of God is working in you and that everything that God wants for you is at your disposal, but you have to choose it. Fight the good fight of the faith. Tes pisteos, the faith, I think is the body of truth that's been delivered, the revelation of God that is believed. You stick to the word of God, in other words, and that's going to be a battle. Now, Expositors like to bring out that the word fight here is agonizomai, and it means to run like a race or to suffer like agony. 
or to fight. And it's the good, the column, the beautiful agona, the beautiful race, run the beautiful race. This is the same injunction as Hebrews chapter 12. Let us therefore run the race that's been set before us. So why does it translate fight? Because this could also mean to fight in a bout, in a, in a, in a, in a contest. And because as you recall in first, first Timothy chapter one, we have Paul telling him to wage the good warfare. Stratuo, the strateia, fight in war, the good battle. It's the same command. Running a race is a battle against against the other person, against your own uh, body wanting you to stop running. You ever run and your body says, stop it. Ah, you ever run enough or consistently enough where your body says, we got this. Keep going, do some more. Okay, okay, now stop. You know what I mean? It's called training. But that's the way the spiritual life is. It's work. It's the grace of God. Don't misunderstand. It's not the energy of the flesh but it's work. You have the Holy Spirit in you to do it. So he, so he commands them to fight, to run, to wage the good warfare. Take hold. See, all these are active words. Take hold of the eternal life. Lay hold of it. Epilambano, another imperative. Take hold of the eternal life. Does this mean Timothy's not a Christian or he needs to get saved? Come on. This is talking about walking in the spirit. It's talking about living the life. Grab it. You have eternal life. Live it. That's what he's saying. Unto which you are called. And you confess the good confession before many witnesses. We're fighting the good fight. We're confessing the good confession. Homo logeo, to confess or to cite the case. The kalos, the good, the beautiful homologia confession so fight the good fight and you've confessed the good confession what is this is where you get the word the theological term confessional christianity now what they mean is that you say the creeds or, or you agree with the historic doctrinal statement as articulated or something and we i mean i'm extremely nicene in my theology and and all that chalcedonian and all but but we don't need a humanly devised doctrinal statement. We've got the word of God here and Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he's not the same as the father and we could go through all our theology. I hope you could. We've had tests and challenges lately to our theology. You'll have it all the time. But he says, you have already made a confession in front of many witnesses to your commitment to the Lord Jesus and to his word. So you live it is what he's saying, live it out. A wedding is the first step where we're saying we're going to do this. And then the marriage is every single day where you love her as Christ loves the church, where she submits to him as the church to the Lord. That's the marriage. And that's what he's talking about. Live it. Take, take the steps. I will close now with an illustration. I received a very interesting email. The email was from Facebook and it was about their initiative of communities of faith. They had a, a seminar to stimulate interfaith dialogue and mutual support for communities of faith 
among people of a spiritual with spirituality or, or I forget exactly how it said it was very ecumenical there are two ways you could approach such a thing but beloved I would highly recommend that if you get such an invitation that you can spend your afternoon with this live seminar that you're not really a contributor to or a content deliverer of and you can get all this good information about how you can facilitate interfaith dialogue and ecumenical spirit my recommendation is that you pass why why because we're not here for interfaith dialogue we're really not we're here to communicate the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ to a world that is dying and desperately needs it. And here's the thing that happens in people's minds. This is, this is where you go from being a Bible believer, a Bible thinking Christian to a person that's part of this world. And I, like all of you, I'm dual formatted. My brain works in both of these. Listen to what I mean. I'm over here on my left. They don't believe like I do. So for me to say that this is the nature of reality. They don't see it that way. So I really shouldn't talk about it that way because they don't, they don't think of it that way. But here on church on Sunday, we all agree that we have a creator who made everything and all the material is a product of his creativity. And it all had a beginning and it was actually a pretty short time ago that it all began. And we have a record of where it came from, what it's for. It's all for God's glory and God is not part of his creation. But they don't think that way. They don't think of the creator that way. So you really have to kind of negotiate how you talk to people so that you kind of get along. You just don't want to be offensive to people, right? In that dance, who do you think wins in the interfaith dialogue? The culture always wins. Because the problem is that you and I don't really have common ground with godlessness. You either believe that God is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him, or you don't. And you and I need to go and talk to this community wisely. And we need to answer, not answer a fool according to his folly, but answer a fool as his folly deserves. We need to, with compassion, not receive what they have to offer so much as understand it so that we can answer it. I have, listen, very, it hasn't happened much. But since I've been here now for 14 years, I've seen people get confused with heresy. I've seen it. I, I saw a Hebrew Roots Movement teacher named Jeff Benner teach a message on, it, it, by the way, Hebrew Roots, just complete, if you, if you want to get information about the Hebrew Bible, please do not go on YouTube. There's this teacher that because he's figured out that nobody knows how to read Hebrew, but people that try to read it as pictures, that the Hebrew letters were pictographs. And so the, the, the meaning of the word comes from the pictures that the letters used to mean. That's the Hebrew roots movement. It's total satanic garbage. It's absolutely garbage. And I teach Hebrew. Words have meaning because of the author's construal of the meaning. And there's no mystical code to look up behind the, what, the, what the phrase means. The battle is the Lord's means the battle is the Lord's. That's what it means. And it'll translate into any language. And that's God's miraculous design of language. You don't have to go figure out what the, the, the pictures might represent in the words. The battle is the Lord's. You understand the content of that message. 
from David in 1 Samuel 17. But I saw this guy on a, on a video talking about how using his method of redefining what words mean by going back to what they call the roots, the Hebrew, the root word, that whatever Genesis chapter 1, 1 means, it can't mean that an eternal creator made everything out of nothing. So the fundamental touchstone of our worldview can't be true. When you hear someone say that, I hope you're hearing the serpent in Genesis 3 talk to you. No, God made everything. He's prior to everything else and he made it all. And there was nothing else when he made it. He made it and it is a part of himself. That's the nature of the physical space-time world we live in, universe we live in, is that God is prior to it and he made it all. What's my point? My point is that the world has all kinds of alternatives to our faith. But you have to keep going back to the word and you have to take hold of the faith and you have to engage the world, but you can't consume it unreflectively. You have to figure out what God's word says about it. And that's worldview thinking and that's how you will be effective. And that's, that's advanced studies, but that's what we're called to. Our Father, we thank you for the advance in your word, for the challenge that you've given Timothy through the Apostle Paul, and for the story as it continues. Timothy uh, did his work, but he also got burned. Paul had to rekindle him. He had to say, get back to it in 2 Timothy. Father, it's because the world is a meat grinder, and it always has been, and it's seeking to devour our children. I pray for all the children of Preston City Bible Church that you would strengthen them to lay hold of this eternal life daily to fight the good fight of the faith, to think your thoughts along with you as you've given us the capability through the richness of this language, of, this, of these scriptures. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.